everybody. Great to see all of you. My name's Eric, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity. That was quite an action-packed passage, very long. Thank you, Juliana, for reading that for us uh, this morning. We are right now in the middle of a series. This is our third message in a series where we're looking at the second part of the book of Acts. We're calling it Throwback because we're throwing back to the days of the early church, these first churches, the first churches ever that were planted in the, uh, the Greco-Roman world. And we're looking at these churches and asking ourselves, how do they inform our vision for what the church should be? How do they inform our vision of what the church should do? And today, as we're looking at these churches, we're asking, how did these churches, as we read about them being planted and started throughout this section of the book of Acts. How did they become churches that were both churches with great depth and maturity, but also churches that looked beyond themselves? They were part of this great movement that God was doing that spread from Jerusalem all the way to the capital city of the time, to Rome. So they were churches of maturity and they were churches of great mission. And uh, there are a lot of ways to think of the book of Acts. One way to think about it is like a photo album. You look back at the photo album of these churches and get snapshots and portraits of these churches in the early days, and they help us stay rooted in the right priorities as a church of who we're called to be. So today, this is our third message in the series. We looked at the church in Antioch. We looked at the church in Jerusalem. And now we're looking at the church and how it began in Philippi. And the title of the message is Transform Church. Acts 16, this passage that we just heard read, is the story of how the church at Philippi began. Later in the New Testament, there's a, there's a letter called Philippians, and this letter is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church. And what we learn from that letter, which was written about 10 years after these events in Acts 16, is that this church at Philippi turned out to be the most healthy of all the churches in the early days of the church. Philippians is known to be Paul's most joyful letter. He's so joyful at what God is doing in this church. It's the letter that's known for having the least amount of issues to correct or things happening in the church. So this church was profoundly healthy and strong and vibrant. So how did this healthy and joyful community come into being. That's what happened here. The story is told for us in Acts chapter 16. And it's not really how we might expect or what we might think. It's not what the church planting manuals might tell you about, hey, focus on these people first as you are planting your church. Go to these places first. It's very unexpected in terms of the initial members and the launch team of the church. But it began with people whose lives were powerfully impacted, powerfully transformed by the gospel. And so what we read in this chapter is really like these three cameos, these three short stories or vignettes of people whose lives were transformed, these transformed life stories. So it's kind of like if you've been looking for the right exercise routine and you see the before and after pictures, you say, okay, it was looking a little flabby over here, but man, P90X transformed this guy into a specimen, so that's what I'm going to do. That's 
Maybe not the best illustration, but it's somewhat of what's happening here is Paul saying, I want to show you how this church began. Or Luke, the author of Acts, is saying, I want to show you three powerful transformed life stories. When it comes to the topic of, of transformation, of our lives being transformed by our Christian faith, I realize that in this room we're coming from all kinds of different places. Some of us are interested we might even be here today and come to investigate and explore the Christian faith because we're looking for some type of reality, some spiritual transformation or change in our lives. And one of the main questions you have is whether Christianity can offer you that transformation. Others of us. We may have been in the church for all of our lives. We may have... Um, come to the Christian faith expecting great changes to take place in our lives, but we've come to a place where we're feeling disillusioned. We feel like Christianity has overpromised and under-delivered under for our lives. So we're maybe disappointed, struggling with areas of our lives that just don't seem to change. Others of you, your story might include places in your life where you experience profound transformation. But maybe this was some years ago, and you're wondering now, am I just coasting? Was that just something in the past, or can my life be transformed today? Acts 16 shows us in these three stories that the gospel, the power of God through the message of Jesus Christ can transform us, no matter who we are, no matter what our story, and no matter what we're facing. And that the healthiest, the most joyful churches are churches who are full of people who experience this ongoing work of God's transforming power in their lives. So if you're following along and you're taking notes, we'll have some of these points displayed behind me. But they're also in your bulletin. We're going to look at three questions. And those are the who, the how, and the what. Who can be transformed? How are our lives transformed? And lastly, what does transformation look like. A little bit of context before we get into the first question. The city of Philippi, um, this account, first of all, is the longest account. It was a long passage that Juliana read. It's the longest account in the book of Acts of Paul's place in any city or town. This city was a Roman colony. So that was very special in that day and age. It meant that if you lived in Philippi, you had all the privileges as if you lived in Rome. And the background story here is that this was formerly a Greek city, when the, the Greco or the, the empire of Alex, Alexander had stretched um, far and wide, and Greek was the big boy on the block, or Greece was the big boy on the block, but then Rome came. And this city was conquered by Rome, and it became a Roman colony, which meant that it was largely settled by ex military people. If you were a Roman soldier and you wanted a place to retire, you would find yourself in a place like Philippi. And that's important, as we'll see, for a number of reasons. But let's look now at the first point. Who can be transformed? Luke, the author of Acts, selected these stories of a successful businesswoman, an oppressed slave, and a Roman jailer to show us the gospel's transforming power across the whole spectrum of Greco-Roman life, of anybody who lived at that time period. So first, let's take these one by one and let's look at Lydia. She's the first one that Luke tells us about. She's a picture of a very successful and good life that was transformed by the gospel. 
Verse 14 describes Lydia, just gives us her name, where she's from, and what she does, and why she's at the river. It's very similar to some of the things that we might ask and we might share when we meet people for the first time. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? It's what successful, upwardly mobile people talk about when they greet each other. And we learn that she was from Thyatira, that she was a seller of purple goods or cloth. And so Thyatira was a city at the time known for its purple dye. So they would make a purple dye that would be turned into use for making purple clothing. And she was a businesswoman from there. So she was a seller of these purple goods. And we know from this short bio that she was a remarkable woman. She was a strong woman. And she was a very independent woman. At this time, it was very rare for a woman to be a business owner. And if she wasn't just any business owner, she had a very successful business. Because purple at the time was the clothing of, of royalty, of the upper class. So she had the very privileged clientele. Her uh, clients and her customers were the high rollers of the time. And she owned her own home. She had her own household which was also very rare. So Lydia had a very successful life. She had a very good life. And as Paul was looking for a place to start, it tells us that he ended up in this place of prayer by the river. What's that all about? Well, usually when Paul went to a city, he started at the synagogue. He was looking for people who had some understanding of the story of the scriptures. He would start there as a home base. But in Philippi, there probably was no synagogue. There was a quorum or a necessary minimum requirement to start a synagogue of having 10 Jewish males. So most likely in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue within the city, but there was a place of prayer on the outskirts of town. So why was Lydia at the river? Luke says she was a worshiper of God. And worshiper of God meant something very specific. That term refers to Greeks who hung around the Jewish religion and the synagogues who were welcomed as interested observers but they hadn't made the all-in and full-out commitment to become Jewish converts. So she was interested, and she was seeking. Though she had a successful, and she had a good life, she was still searching. There was an emptiness that she still had. Her success, making it, proving everybody wrong, and having everything, that wasn't enough. Thomas Merton said, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success, only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. What we see in Lydia is that the gospel transforms people who, though they live very successfully and have a good life, are searching for more and longing for more. So Lydia went from hanging back in the Jewish faith to going all in. It says she was baptized. She joined the community. And in Jesus, she found what she was missing in her life, and she was all in. That's Lydia. Second picture is of the slave girl. She's a picture of an oppressed or a trapped life. On the way out to the place of prayer, Paul was going there regularly. There was this girl that was following them around, and it says that she kept on shouting out, These men are servants of the Most High God, and she had this spirit of divination. The term that's used to describe her, the spirit of divination, that's, that's a little weird for us. What is going on there? That's actually referring to the serpent oracle, Python, of Greek mythology. So she was technically 
what would be known as a Pythoness. And that's, again, a little bit strange for us. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter, like she was parcel tongue or something like that. But this was something that it was a reality of the time. The Bible affirms the reality of real spiritual evil, the spiritual realm, not to the exclusion of the psychological and the social, but she was experiencing very real spiritual oppression. And on top of that, she was experiencing the social oppression of being considered a piece of property by her owners. And she was being used by them for their financial gain. Her life is a picture of a life that is enslaved and oppressed and entrapped. If Lydia was on the upper rungs of society, this girl was on the lowest rung at the very bottom. Even Paul here. What do we see? Even Paul was guilty of completely overlooking her. After this is happening repeatedly, it says, he became greatly annoyed by this and finally said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. And at that moment, she was released from spiritual oppression. And probably at that point, being of no use to her owner, she was released from them as well. So Paul, the great apostle Paul, is not being put in a great light here. Annoyance is not the ideal motive for ministry, but it's like God is saying, pay attention, Paul. I want to do a powerful work of transformation in this girl's life, whom you're just completely overlooking. So in her life, in this picture, we see the power of the gospel to set people free from bondage and oppression. Lydia, the slave girl, and now the jailer. The jailer was a picture of a hardened life, a very cynical life. As I shared earlier, Roman, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. And this meant that a lot of Roman soldiers ended up settling there. So this jailer was almost certainly a former military guy. He was kind of a part of the middle class. We had upper class with Lydia, lower class with the slave girl. He was in the middle class. He had a career in the Roman military, which meant... We just kind of remember life at that time and even life in the military now. You're confronted with hard things, the brutality of death. He went from that life, the life of the military, to going into the life of being a jailer. And I know there's a, there's a show out there, I don't know if you've seen it, called Scared Straight, where kids who are getting in trouble with the law go for a visit to the prison so they can get scared straight in their lives. And I was remembering back as I was thinking about this jailer's life and trying to understand and, and try to put myself in his shoes. Like, what was it like to be a jailer in that time? I was thinking back to a time when I was in middle school, and I attended my friend's uh, youth ministry, his high school ministry, or middle school ministry. And they were doing this thing called the lock-in, where you just stay all night at the church. But a part of the lock-in was to go on a field trip to the jail downtown in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm not sure why. That was a part of the plan, but I just went with the flow. We got in a bus, went to the prison, and just took a tour of the jail. And I'll have to say, I was scared. Um, that was a very scary place to be, to hear, to see the lives of these people behind uh, the prison bars, and even hearing their taunting and jeering. You cannot be soft and nice as a jailer. He was encountering humanity regularly at their worst, at their most broken, and he wasn't into going to having prayer meetings by the river. That wasn't where you would find him. He was a man of duty. You see that 
The magistrate said, I want you to take these men into the prison. They were already beaten. Their clothes were already ripped from them, Paul and Silas. And so he takes them in and he goes the extra mile. It says he put them in the inner prison, in the darkest inner prison. He put their feet in stocks, which was probably for torture, not just for safety. This was a hardened man. He went above and beyond in severity. Yet even someone who is so hardened by what they've done, yet even someone who is so hardened by what they see and the brokenness and the realities of human suffering and evil, even someone like that was radically transformed by the gospel. A few takeaways as we look at these three pictures. I think Luke wants us to see two things. Number one, the gospel can transform anyone. It's universal. And number two, the gospel can transform us in all of our needs and any of our brokenness. It's comprehensive. The church that began here, with the three, it began with the three most dif- different people you could ever imagine. Lydia, businesswoman, slave girl, oppressed and trapped life, and this jailer. You know, at the time, there was a daily prayer that Jewish men prayed every day. And it, the prayer went like this. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile slave or a woman. And here we see all three being welcomed into this new community that God was building in the gospel. Scholars agree that probably more people uh, responded to the gospel here in Philippi, but Luke specifically picked these three. To show us the gospel is for everyone. There's no class, there's no type, there's no race of people that the gospel is for specifically. It's for all. And you notice here that their needs were very different. Their posture, where they began with this idea of faith was all very different. Lydia was interested, she was searching, she was seeking. The slave girl was antagonistic, she was mocking. The jailer was completely uninterested. These were all their preconceptions about faith. And their needs were different. Lydia was successful but empty. The slave girl was trapped and hopeless. And this jailer was hardened and very cynical. Somebody who probably said, I don't really need anything in my life. And the point is, it's showing us that God can transform us. No matter where we're coming from, no matter what need we face, the transformation of the gospel is comprehensive. So that's who can be transformed. How does this transformation take place? The next question. In addition to seeing all the varieties of people that were changed, we also see here in this chapter the variety of ways that God uses to bring transformation into our lives. The first one is through careful reflection. And we see this in the story of Lydia. Lydia was transformed by this powerful combination of God. It says, opening up her heart along with her intellectual engagement with the gospel message. There's a progression here as you look at the text. First, it says that she was just hearing. She was among many people hearing, and she was just listening to what was being said. But then it says God opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. Now, many of you are parents in this room or have been parents. One of the toughest realities of parenthood is when you are trying to communicate something very important to your child, and you can just tell by the look on their eyes and the glazed look that it's just going one ear and out the other. And you want to say, 
Are you paying attention to me? This is important. The reason I share that is if, if we aren't experiencing transformation, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we paying attention? Some of us respond to the scriptures with just a consistent skepticism. We're stuck in our skepticism. Some of us feel like I've already heard this. I already know this. Some of us are feeling very apathetic. It's just going in one ear and out the other for us. The word there for pay attention is more than just listen. But the word there means to give heed to, to process, to think about, to give rational engagement to what is being said. And transformation then happens when we take heed with all of our mind and all of our heart to the gospel. So it's careful attention. Secondly, we see God transforms us through crisis moments. The story of the slave girl is this very dramatic moment in the story. We're not really told the rest of her story. We're not sure whether she did, in fact, end up joining this church. But many scholars think because she's between Lydia and the jailer that, in fact, Luke means to show us that she was a part of this new community. Either way, her life was transformed by this crisis moment. God set her free from spiritual bondage. And we have many questions about this in our modern day, but Jesus' ministry had many examples of this as well. It affirms the reality of spiritual evil and bondage, and we see him setting people free throughout his ministry. But what's important to note here is that the Bible's focus on these moments, these crisis moments of deliverance, is that they aren't the end and they aren't necessarily the highlight of a person's transformation. But they're the opportunity for a new beginning. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. He says in this passage, he's talking about using the same language that's here in our text, when an unclean spirit has gone out, same word there, comes out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. There's a lot we could say about that. But the point I think that's being made there, that Jesus is making there, is that when we have a crisis moment in our lives, when God does something profound in our lives, it's not necessarily for us to live in that moment always. That moment is a new opportunity for us, a new opportunity to begin a path of transformation. And so not necessarily, I'm not downplaying these moments of, of crisis deliverance, the point is that we not, we're not supposed to put our hope in one moment or wanting to go back in the past and looking for that, not looking for us to measure our lives by crisis moment experiences. But remember, there's an ongoing journey. If you think about this girl and her life, we're not told exactly how old she was, but her life being oppressed all these years, this was just the beginning for her. She needed to be loved. She needed the care, the instruction, and the healing of a new community. Sometimes God will bring that crisis moment into our lives to transform us by giving us that opportunity for a new beginning. That's the second way. 
we see how God transforms us. Thirdly, through concrete examples. When we see the practical difference that Christianity makes in another person's life. This is what happened with the jailer. He was a very practical man. He said, I'm not going to listen to you unless you show me something that will make the world a better place. Then I'll listen. He was that kind of person. And when he saw Paul and his team, there they were in prison, having been beaten, clothes torn, and they were singing in their suffering. And when they were set free, this earthquake happened. They could have just walked out. They stayed for him. His heart was suddenly persuaded. When he saw this connection, when he saw this congruence between the message that they were proclaiming and how their lives matched up with that message, he wanted to know, is it real? Matthew Paris, he's a journalist for the London Times. He grew up in Africa. He wrote an article on what he observed happening in his native land. He visited after, I think, 40-plus years. He went back to Africa, and he noticed the work that was happening through missionaries and other Christians. And here, I want to read you a selection from what he said in his article. Matthew Paris said, Now a confirmed atheist, he's talking about himself, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It begins and brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. And he goes on to say that for many years, he always thought, why can't Christians separate the good that they're doing from this idea of their faith and the spiritual things that they're talking about? And then he realized these things were inseparable, that there was an indispensable connection between their faith, spiritual transformation, and the social transformation that they sought to happen in the communities that they were a part of. It's not just in Africa where social transformation is needed, where justice is needed. And we see from this jailer's story that God powerfully uses people whose lives are congruent, whose lives are consistent with the message of the gospel, of a savior of suffering love, and the hope of a victorious risen king. God uses all these three ways to transform us. Careful reflection, sometimes crisis moments, and concrete examples of seeing the difference that faith can make in the lives of other people. But what probably struck me personally the most as I was praying through this and thinking about this this week is what all three have in common. Those are all very different ways that God used to change and transform people. But what they all have in common is that they all have an emphasis on God's pursuit. On this is God's initiative. On God is the one doing the work of transformation. One of my favorite children's books that I've read to all four of my boys is called Runaway Bunny. I don't know if any of you have read that book, but it's the story of two bunnies, a mom and her son. And the son, I guess he didn't have a good day because he's coming up and inventing all these ways of running away from home. 
Every time he comes up with a new way to run away from his mom, his mom says, well, I've got a more creative way to pursue you. I will be there, no matter where you go, to find you. It's the story of the bunny who wants to run away from his mom, but his mom's pursuing relentless love. I think that's what's going on here in Acts 16. Paul didn't want to go to Philippi. We didn't read it, but earlier on, he wanted to go to other places. He said, God, strategically, I think I need to go to Bithynia and these other places. God prevented him and said, I want you to go to Philippi. He went. And it was so God could open up Lydia's heart. It was not natural for a Jewish man to speak to a Gentile woman, but that was exactly where God had sent him. It was God who kept allowing the slave girl to keep following Paul and annoying Paul and saying, Paul, don't you see? I want to deliver her. I want to set her free. It was God working behind the scenes, even in Paul and Silas's imprisonment and in their suffering, so that the jailer and his whole family might be restored and experience joy in their household, maybe for the first time in a long time. In Philippi, we see God is the seeker. God is the pursuer. And God is the transformer. What we see from Paul, the great apostle Paul, the greatest missionary, great pastor, is that he was just in the right place at the right time. It was God who was doing the work. We see who is transformed. We see how we are transformed. And lastly, some thoughts on what a transformed life looks like. What are the signs of gen genuine transformation? How do we know when it's happening to us? What does it look like? Often I think we look for the wrong signs, or at least we overemphasize the wrong signs. Sometimes we think it's about immediate moral transformation. I'm a new person. I don't struggle with the things that I used to struggle with anymore. Sometimes we think it's about consistent spiritual disciplines and devotional practices, which are important, but those take time to develop. Here, we see three signs of what transformation looks like. The first is hospitality. What's so striking about this passage is that both Lydia and the jailer have the same immediate response to believing in Jesus and becoming Christians. They say, come into my home. Come into my home and be with my family. Talk to my house about this. Both of these together show us that one of the most important signs of a transformed life is this idea of hospitality. The open and generous sharing of our time, our life, and our things with others. Throughout the book of Acts, it's the home. In Greek, it's called the oikos. It's the central place of ministry throughout the entire book of Acts. It's where God shows up and powerfully works. One commentator says, in Acts, it's the house that's the creative hub of God's redemptive work. And then another scholar says, it's simply families that open up their homes that can become key players in fulfilling the mission of the kingdom. And in some ways, I think it is that simple. We can be guilty of overcomplicating what ministry and church should look like. As we see here, God worked as people gathered around the message of Jesus in homes, around food. 
In fact, the entire New Testament lifts up hospitality as one of the most important evidences of spiritual transformation. It's one of the requirements for spiritual leadership. It shows up throughout the, Old Test or the New Testament. When we were formally closed off and holding on to our things, hospitality says now we've opened up and released our grip on the things in our life. We're willing to share. We're willing to be generous. In fact, if you look at those characters in this story who were the only ones who were not experiencing transformation, the only ones whose lives were not transformed, who were they? It was the owners, the owners of the slave girl, the ones who were in the grip of money and gain. They saw transformation powerfully happening before their lives, and they didn't even notice because they were so in the grip of what they had, of their gain. Notice what Lydia and the jailer didn't do. A quick note on hospitality. They didn't say, Paul, Silas, why don't you come over later? I need to go home. I need to straighten up. Let me prepare something really good. Let me get everything set for you. They just said, come. Just come as you are. And that's hospitality. It's not entertaining. It's not impressing. It's just opening up your life to others. Hospitality, the first one. Secondly, hope in suffering. This story is filled with all these remarkable scenes, but probably the most memorable is this picture of Paul and Silas. They're in the inner prison. Their feet are in the stocks. And at midnight, they're singing. Singing hymns to God. That is a powerful picture. It's what got the jailer's attention. Poet Frederick Langbridge said, Two men look out the same bars. One sees the mud, and one sees the stars. Christianity doesn't offer us an end to all our suffering here and now. It doesn't offer us a quest, an answer to all of our questions about our suffering and our pain. But it does offer profound hope, a hope that runs deeper than our suffering in this life. That's what the jailer saw in Paul and Silas. That was the transformation that Paul and Silas displayed before the prisoners and the jailer in his household. A hope that we can still sing in our suffering. The last mark of a transformed life is a softened heart. The transformation of the jailer in his life is profound. He went from being somebody who beat people, who imprisoned people, and then he welcomed Paul and Silas into his house, and it says he fed them. And then it says he actually washed their wounds. The soldier jailer. His hands that were formerly hands of torture, of pain, became hands of healing. Some of us have very good reason to be hardened by the hurt we've experienced. Maybe the hurt that we've witnessed in this world. And the saying is true. Hurt people hurt people. But the gospel transforms our cynicism, our jadedness, even our hurt, to soften our hearts so that we look beyond the pain, beyond our suffering, to be people who can even care for others, even love others, even while we, while we still wrestle with our own struggles and our own suffering. That's the who, the how, and the what 
of how the gospel can bring transformation even to our lives now. And as we celebrate communion in just a moment, we could probably add a fourth question to this. A question that communion shows us the answer to, which would be, what is the power for our transformation? As we look at Acts 16, some commentators believe that the meal that the jailers shared, the jailer and his household shared with Paul and Silas, actually included the Lord's Supper or communion. We can't know for sure, but it would make sense if that happened that Paul would introduce these new Christians to this meal, the Lord's Supper. Because communion is a visible picture of Paul's answer to the jailer's question when he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He simply said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's the power. That's the power for transformation. And we might say, it sounds so simple. And it is simple, but it's not easy. Because we falter in our faith. We forget that faith means we're looking outside of ourselves for the power for transformation. We're not looking within ourselves. And communion, as this meal, points us outside of ourselves to the power of transformation that is found in Jesus and what he has done for us. It points us to the past, backwards, to show us that what Jesus has done for us is enough. It meets us in the present. God meets us in this present moment, wherever, right now, wherever you stand longing for transformation, where you most feel you need change. This meal binds us together as a community and strengthens us and sustains us with God's grace. And it points us forward to the future like an appetizer. To know that one day, when Jesus comes again, He will bring the total transformation, not not only of our lives, of our hearts, but of this entire cosmos. Past, present, and future. The power for transformation is not with us, or within us. The power for transformation is in the Lord Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to come forward. Before that, let me pray for us. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this idea of transformation, of change, of people from all sorts of backgrounds facing all sorts of different challenges and issues, and struggles in our lives of, of one message, of being one, there's one source of transformation found in the gospel. Lord, it almost sounds too good to be true, but I pray as we've seen these stories of you at work in the lives of radically different people bringing radical transformation, that even now, as we spend time reflecting and then as we come forward to be reminded of the good news that is true. I pray now, Lord, that you would fill our emptiness. I pray now that you would bring deliverance from areas in our lives where we feel trapped or enslaved. I pray now that you would soften our hearts if they've become cynical and hardened. It's a work that only you can do. The pursuing, loving God who loves us with an unbreakable love. 
we thank you for the great power of transformation that is found in your Son, Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.